Sunday's a deadline for the box and all the material going off to uh, to Jim Myers, and then we need to continue to pray and be uh, ready to serve in prep school. We need some folks there, and we need uh, some folks to help out with the um, Good News Club that we're going to start and pray, be in prayer for a church, I mean a church, a school that uh, where we can teach the Good News Club and for all the support people and everything else uh, that we need. And then I guess that's that's pretty much uh, it, I think, I believe. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll let everybody have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. This is a time when you can, uh, in silent prayer, confess your sins to God. We know that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we begin, we'll have silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are so very grateful for all the many ways in which you uh, bless us each and every day, for all the many ways in which you provide for us and sustain us, and above all, we're thankful for our so great salvation, that we have a salvation that is not dependent in any way on anything that we do or anything that we say or any actions or change of life or anything. It's all because Christ paid the penalty for every sin on the cross and that the penalty is paid in full, so the issue is not what we've done or what we haven't done. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith in Christ alone, we know we have eternal life. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, your gift to us. And, Father, we're thankful for that. We pray tonight as we study, as we think through how Paul is presenting the gospel to us, pagan audience that has no frame of reference whatsoever for the truth, for your word, for Christ, or the cross, or resurrection, and that although he doesn't have a large response, he does have a response, even though much of it is negative, just as the response we see today is mostly negative. Still, we have to understand that what Paul did was correct, what Paul did was right, and what Paul did gives us a pattern and a strategy for evangelism in that kind of a situation. So we pray that we might be have the patience, the diligence, the discipline to think through what Paul is doing and how he does it in order to properly present the gospel to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Tonight we're going to continue with our study in, Ath- in Paul's uh, sermon to the Athenians on uh, Mars Hill on the Areopagus in Athens. 
Last week, I talked about the fact that the first and foremost principle that we learn from this is that we have to know the audience, know our target audience, understand the people that we're witnessing to. I pointed out that people are at different places in their spiritual journey. Some people haven't a clue about Christianity. Other people have heard the gospel so much they can almost give it to you verbatim and correctly, but they haven't believed. And so you have to un- understand where your audience is and don't just assume that when you say things that they understand you. I mean, that's, that's a terrible problem in teaching. Sometimes teachers just get up and this, the teachers in public schools and in colleges are extremely guilty of this. It's called, we refer to it sometimes as academic arrogance. They just stand up and they talk as if everybody in the audience is going to understand what they're talking about. And many times they don't. A good pedagogue, a good teacher, is involved in education. He wants to teach and train people so that they can understand uh, what it is that he is saying and not just make themselves look good. Now, tonight we're going to start getting into some more intricate things. We'll talk about that as we go along. We're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about the unknown gods. A lot of misunderstanding about these altars to the unknown God in, in various Greek temples. The Stoics, the Epicureans, who are the primary audience of Paul's, Paul's uh, address. And he's going to bring in something called evolution and also the chain of being. A lot of interesting things that we're going to drill into tonight. But first, a little, a little commercial break, a little, uh, something amusing. I left Sunday afternoon, drove over to a friend's in, uh, north of New Orleans and Dan Ingram. Uh, flew in Monday morning. I picked him up at the airport, and we spent the good part of yesterday at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And if you've never had a chance to go over there, wait about mm, six or eight months to go over there. They've got two new buildings they're constructing. They'll be done by then. But it's a great museum. They've got about Two, two main buildings open that have a tremendous amount of, of uh, material in there. One has a great, uh, great film orientation to World War II and just tremendous material over there. And one reason it's over there is because of the, uh, I always forget his name. What's his name? Uh, H, uh, the, the guy with the boats. Who did the boats? Higgins. I couldn't hear you. Higgins. That's right. The Higgins boats, the landing craft. And those were built. And a lot of naval, smaller naval ship boats were built in New Orleans, so that's why it was originally built there as the National D-Day Museum. And we went in this time, and I was there about four months ago, and they had some sports exhibit there for some reason. And now they had a display on this side of a lot of heavy weapons from World War II, including the 88-millimeter flat gun. Now, this is a picture of the 88-millimeter flat gun, and it was uh, one of the most feared weapons that the Germans had. And Stephen Ambrose says that the 88s, uh, and they were feared because they they were not only an anti-aircraft gun, but they had a flat trajectory, so they could be used as an anti-tank weapon. And so they scared the dickens out of everybody. And Stephen Ambrose, who's a World War II uh, historian, said that those 88s became a legend. It was said that there were more soldiers converted to Christianity by the 88 than by Paul and Peter. 
Since we're studying Acts, I thought that was appropriate. So we're studying Paul's evangelistic methodology in Athens. Now, last time I pointed out that as we look at this, I want to bring in some of the key principles that we have in Bible study methods. How do we study the Bible for ourselves? And one of the questions, that, and we need to ask a series of questions. There are three or four divisions in Bible study methods. Observation, which is what does the text say? It's absolutely amazing how many people uh, cannot answer the question, what does the text say? I've had, even had some verses when I've said, well, what is it, where does the Bible say that? Now, I don't know, but my pastor said it. I said, well, I want to know what the Bible says. I really don't want to know what your pastor says or my favorite theologian said or somebody said. What does the Bible say? And you can, I've even had people read a verse and say, well, does that say X? And they'll go, yes. Where? That, those, those words aren't in that verse. People are in incredibly blind, and when we teach, when we have our our uh, Bible study methods class, I'm already collecting some various uh, fun videos and pictures and things to test your powers of observation. And we soon discover that we're all pretty blind. We see what we've been told is there often. We see what people, what we want to see, but rarely are we objective enough to see what is actually in front of us. This is one of the reasons why many studies have shown that eyewitnesses are notoriously inaccurate in giving reports of what they have, uh, what they have seen. So we have observation, what does the text say? Then we have interpretation, what does the text mean? Then we have correlation, and that is taking what we think the text means and comparing it with other scripture. And then we have the last step, which is application. Most people start off with application. They think observation means, what is the text telling me to do? No, that's the last step. Uh, if you do spend a lot of time in observation, you spend less time in interpretation. If you don't spend a whole lot of time in observation, your interpretation's probably not going to be correct, and that's going to mess up your application. A lot of people think that application uh, is really what is, what is interpretation, what does the text mean to me? And mostly I don't ever care what the text means to you. I'm really concerned about what the text meant to God the Holy Spirit and the writer and the human writer of Scripture. And once we can get that squared away, it's pretty obvious what God wants you and I to do. So we have to look at these issues. Under observation, we ask the, the basic questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And uh, where here, as we'll get into this, is in Athens, which is in ancient Greece, in Achaia, and is uh, now a little bit long in the tooth, so to speak, and from its glory days in the 5th century B.C. when the great schools of philosophy were there under Socrates, Plato, uh, Aristotle, uh, and Plato. And this is where Paul has ended up. He gives a well-known message here, which I find is frequently not addressed very deeply, uh, if it is, it's often misunderstood. I'm not saying that I always understand. Every time I go back to this, I have to drill down a little bit more. And I pointed out last time that Adolf Deisman, a noted uh, a New Testament scholar from the turn of the last century, said that this is the greatest missionary document in the New Testament. I want you to keep that in mind because there are two major addresses by the Apostle Paul, one in Acts 13, one in Acts 
um, Acts 17 here, where he's addressing two different unbelieving audiences. One's Jewish with a background in Old Testament truth, and one is purely pagan. And there's a lot we can learn from these two presentations of the Apostle Paul in presenting the gospel to different, different audiences. Pointed out last time that the basic structure is given with an introduction in 1716 to 21, where Paul goes to the city, walks around, sees a lot of idols, and it really begins to uh, irritate him. So he begins to go to the synagogue and to the marketplace, went down to HEB, went down to the Galleria, began to talk to people about their beliefs. I saw somebody do a double take and said, I didn't see H-E-B in the text. No. You've got to read between the lines. That's a whole other level of interpretation. I'm just joking. Just want to make sure you're awake. And then the sermon is 22 to 31. He has an introduction, and he uses a touchstone off the unknown God. He says, I've seen a lot of idols here, and I notice there's one to the unknown God. And then he uses that as a way to introduce the God of creation, who he is not identifying as the God, the unknown God. He gives a description of God focusing on God as a, as the creator God in verses 24 through 29. And this is, in, this is, this shows us why the doctrine of creation, ex nihilo creation in Genesis 1 is foundational. I've heard a lot of Christians over the years say, why do you get so upset over creation and evolution? Because create, what you do with origins, with your view of origins, is the foundation of everything else that you think. That is, if you're logical and you're consistent. And so Paul, ta- if you don't have the right God that's in the God of creation who stands outside of creation, then everything else gets distorted. And this gets a little tricky to deal with because it's rather sophisticated in understanding this, the implications of these things. So he, he spends he spends six verses on this description of God, and then he challenges the the audience with the implications. That then they get all uh, just upset because they can't really understand what he is saying. And that points up another extremely important reality: that is, the more immersed your audience is in unbelief and the darkness of unbelief, the less capable they are of understanding what you say. So we have to come to a certain place where we have to understand what do we do to do the best job we can do to make the gospel as clear as we can. In spiritual depravity... They are so much in darkness, we may, it's not really up to us. We can't ultimately make it perfectly clear. God the Holy Spirit does that. But Paul made it as clear as he could without compromising his, his assumptions and tr- the truth about God. He didn't try to water things down, and we'll get into that some. But he, he makes it very clear who the, his God is, and he does have some converts. We have to be careful because we live in a culture that if you don't have a lot, you, you haven't really done it right. The problem is Noah stands as a judge against that view because Noah faithfully proclaimed the, a true gospel for over a 100 years and didn't have a single convert, and he did it exactly right. Numbers may not tell the story. 
So this is just a summary of what's going to happen. So we're asking these six questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. The first question is it's talking about Paul and Silas, uh, Paul, who has come to Athens. Uh, Silas and Timothy are mentioned, but they have stayed behind, and Paul was sent ahead. The Athenians are mentioned specifically two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, and we'll have to get into identifying who they are, and a group referred to here and uh, but mentioned outside of the scripture as the Council of the Areopagus. This was a group of philosophical leaders and elders who whenever anybody came with a new idea, they sort of had to explain it and have a hearing before uh, this particular council. Uh, what happens is that Paul's provoked by the idolatry and begins presenting the gospel to an intellectual polytheist, to a group of intellectual polytheistic pagans. Pagan is a technical term for people whose belief system is not influenced by a Judeo-Christian background. It is not a, a term that's pejorative. It's not an insult. Uh, it's not running somebody down. It is simply saying they do not have a belief system that's influenced by a Judeo-Christian uh, frame of reference. Acts 17.16 says, When Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. This is the uh, Greek word paroxuno, which is a cognate of paroxysm, and it refers to a passion of being upset, stirred up, or angry. As you go around Athens, you see things like the Temple of Hephaestus, and then you see the Temple of Themis, and the theater of Dionysius, which is just outside or just at the uh, at the uh, ground level of the of the uh, Acropolis, the temple of Zeus uh, is seen from the Acropolis, and then above the city is the Acropolis itself, which is the uh, temple to Athena. And so th- everywhere he went, every time he turned around, there was another idol, another temple to another Greek god or goddess. And this is the Apostle Paul who's grown up in a Greco-Roman culture in Tarsus. So he's not unfamiliar with this, but there was such a plethora, such a multiplicity of idols in Athens. It was said in the ancient world to have been more than anywhere else in the ancient world. There's just a marketplace of, of religious options. Every God you could think of, and if you could, in, in case you left some out, that's where the uh, idol to the unknown God came from. Just in case you missed one, you didn't want to offend a God. So just to make sure you covered all your bases, you would put up an idol to the unknown God. He's just another God in their pantheon that they might have missed or not yet know about, okay? So the temple to the, the the idol to the unknown god isn't an idol to represent the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they don't know about. It's just another god that, in case they missed one, but in their thinking, he's part of their pan- that god would be part of their pantheon. Now we ask the question: When is this? It's in the uh, second missionary journey. Uh, sometime around 5152 A.D., uh, er, the, it takes place in Athens and the Areopagus. The Areopagus is Mars Hill, and here we have a picture of the a little close up, closer up picture of the of the uh, 
um, Parthenon on the Acropolis, and we're looking at it kind of from the back, and this area over here, I believe, is the, uh, is the Areopagus. Here's an aerial shot, and the, these are some labels here. So here's the aerial shot. No, I had misidentified those trees. Here's Mars Hill over here behind the trees, the Areopagus. This is the Parthenon itself with the, had an enormous statue of Athena that was illuminated at night. Uh, inside the Parthenon, the ancient world. Here's the theater of Dionysius. Here, the odium of, of Herodes Atticus, who was one of the uh, rulers, I believe. And here was another god, and this was the hill of Nyx. So this gives you a, a understanding of how this dominated the area. And, of course, Athens was much, much smaller at that time. Now... <clears throat> Why is this in the Scripture? It's in the Scripture in order to give us an illustration of the inability of unbelief to comprehend. Unbelief shrouds the mind in darkness so that the unbeliever can become so immersed in his unbelief that when you talk to him in your little pat Christian jargon phrases that you understand and all your Christian friends understand, that unbeliever who's never darkened the door of a church doesn't have a clue what you're talking about, which is what happens here. Paul mentions Jesus and Jesus' resurrection, Jesus in the Greek and, um, and, uh, and, and resurrection is anastasis, and they're thinking that Jesus and anastasis are two new gods to stick up on the shelf with all their other gods. See, this is what happens in unbelief. They, he, they don't understand that when he talks about Jesus, he's talking about the creator God of the universe that stands completely separate and distinct from everything they've ever thought of as religion. And when they, he, Paul talks about resurrection, they can't take that literally because for them, resurrection is the most ridiculous thing that anybody could ever think of because in the Greek mind when you died your immaterial soul went to the place of the dead to Hades but it was impossible this is their presuppositional base it is impossible for anyone to bodily return from Hades it can't happen anybody who says it does is just a fool they're not worth listening to they're uneducated barbaric everything it just they can't even fathom that somebody would talk about resur bodily resurrection as a legitimate concept. So what their thinking does is they automatically uh, assume and redefine what Paul has said, that he they, they assume that he can't possibly believe in physical bodily resurrection, so therefore he must be talking about another God. That's how the unbeliever's mind works. You think you've made the gospel clear, and yet, if they're trying, if you were to ask them to repeat it back to you, what you get has nothing to do with, with what you said. I've had that experience as a pastor many times. I'll have somebody say, well, I remember when you taught X, Y, or Z, and I go, I never would have said that. That's ridiculous. Where in the world did I ever say that? And I've heard people say the same thing about, you know, they'll say other things about other pastors, and and I'm that pastor never taught that. What in the world have you been listening to? But it's amazing how people take 
what somebody says, and then in with their frame of reference, they sort of wrap their viewpoint around what the other person said, and, and in just a nanosecond, they've reinterpreted and reshaped it and made it fit their fraudulent worldview. And that's what's happening here. So we see an illustration of the inability of unbelief to comprehend. And so in verse 17, Paul said that we read that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, the God-fearers, in the marketplace, in the open marketplace, the Agora, daily with those who happened to be there. Just whoever walked along, Paul would strike up a conversation and use that as an opportunity to start to talk about the gospel. The how question that we ask as part of our observation is how does he do it? So we have to try to pick apart and see somehow how do can we understand Paul's strategy in to block this envelopment strategy of unbelief. Unbelief tries to en- envelop what you've so- said about God, reinterpret it, refashion it so that it fits within their their frame of uh, uh, frame of reference. Now the thing is that. The reason we have trouble doing this analysis is because we're not that familiar with Greco-Roman thought. We're not that familiar with the thinking of the Stoics and the Epicureans. But you and I are very familiar with the kind of thinking of the average person on the street in America. Uh, some of us need to become a little more familiar with that because we've been in the Christ, sort of in the Christian cocoon for so long that we don't really uh, have a great understanding of a lot of our target audience when we're talking to people. And um, but others of us have a pretty good understanding, and so we can do this. We just have to understand what Paul's doing and why he's doing it, and that's going to mean we're going to have to drill down into understanding. Uh, Greco-Roman culture and the thinking of the Stoics and the Epicureans a little bit. In Acts 17:18, we read, "Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say?' Well, the word there for babbler is a Greek word, sperma, meaning seed. So it's talking about a little thing. Sperma, logos, compound word. Logos is a word." And a babbler, this word spermalagos, referred to somebody who was an idea picker, somebody who wanted to make themselves look brilliant. And so they read a lot, they listened to different people, and they just picked up all the little catchphrases and idioms from different erudite teachers, and then they would uh, jumble them together in, in, in their talk to make themselves sound smart and sound well-read and sound intelligent, but they really didn't make any sense. They just used a lot of these ideas. So that's what they're accusing the Apostle Paul of, is he just has all this verbiage, and it it sounds, at the surface, sounds rather uh, scholarly and erudite, but it really just doesn't mean anything. It's it's so incomprehensible that he's just just another babbler. And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, And the reason he said this, Luke explains this in that last line, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now in the next three verses we read, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of of which you speak. So you go to the Areopagus, and this is a place where this council of the philosophical elites met, 
whenever anybody had a new thought, new idea, new system, then they would have to defend it before this council of the Areopagus that was made up of 30 or 40 different individuals. And so that's where they're, they're taking him. And they want to evaluate what it is. You see, this is not a trial, but it's, it's sort of an interview to make sure that he's not bringing some completely new dangerous idea uh, that might be illegal into Athens. And verse 20 we read, For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. Now the question is, do they really want to know what they mean, or are they just saying that out of a shallow intellectual curiosity that just wants to have their ears tickled, their mind stimulated, and yet they really don't want to know truth. They're not searching for truth. Some years ago, I had a a friend that uh, frequently had, um, you know, social get-togethers and parties at his house, and he frequently invited a Jewish lawyer friend of his. And over the course of several years, I realized that this Jewish lawyer could probably give everybody there a better, a better explanation of the gospel than most people ever get. And he loved sitting down and talking to any of us about the gospel. But he wasn't at all interested in believing the gospel. He just thought it was a great opportunity. Some of you who know what I'm talking about are nodding your heads because you were there too. Um, he just he just loved the intellectual stimulation of the debate. And that's where the Athenians are, and this is what Luke will explain to us. Um, in verse 21 he says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. They didn't want to know what truth was. They just wanted new theories and some new way of explaining things, a lot like professional educators in our culture. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. I've seen in education, as I was a teacher at one point, every four or five years there's a whole new program brought in. If you're around long enough, pretty soon you're doing the same thing you were doing 20 years ago. But in education... uh, and in higher education, in schools of education, in various universities, when you get your doctorate, they have to write a dissertation. They always have to generate a whole new approach to education. And they never seem to solve the problems in education. But every four or five years, everything has to be redone because they need something new. It's the same idea. We're in love with getting new things, but we never get, are in love with really truly solving problems, just throwing more money at it. That's the American way. So in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, this is a real tongue-in-cheek word. If there were any Jews in the audience, they were chuckling under their breath because he just insulted nearly everybody there. He used the word uh, daimon. Now, the last part of that word, daimon, is where we get our word demon. And it's translated religious or superstitious, something of that nature. But there's this sort of double entendre there that uh, indicates that he's basically saying you're getting your ideas from the devil. Because other than the truth of the gospel, all other ideas that make a competitive claim to truth against the word of God ultimately comes from the devil, comes from the devil's world and is in competition with God's truth. 
So he goes on to say in verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, in their culture, the unknown God was just another God. They just wanted to make sure they didn't know uh, that they weren't leaving one out because they wanted to make sure they didn't offend a God. So then Paul says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing. Now, he's not saying this idol to the unknown God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he makes a separate statement and he says, the one uh, you worship without knowing, in other words, you don't know anything about him, this isn't him, I proclaim to you. Now, I want to look at the dynamics of what's happening here. Romans 1.18, we have to go back. This is one of the most important passages and doctrines to understand is the nature of the sin nature and arrogance of the person who's turned against God. Romans 1.18, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and the wrath of God isn't a term for future judgment. It's a term for God's judgment in historical time. So the wrath of God comes upon people individually and nations and groups The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we're looking at a subcategory of men, a category that's defined by being truth suppressors. They are, uh, they've rejected the nonverbal revelation of God in the heavens and they are seeking to redefine reality on their own terms. This word translating suppress is kateko in the Greek, K-A-T-E-C-H-O. It's a present active participle, which means this represents a continuous action on their part. It characterizes them. They are truth suppressors. The meaning of the word has to do, first of all, with preventing someone from doing something or causing it to be ineffective, to prevent it, to hinder, restrain, to hold or, or to hold down something. So it's to prevent something. So what they're trying to do is prevent the knowledge of the truth from uh, being exposed or being uh, impressed upon their conscious mind. So they're pushing it down inside their soul. The last thing they want to know is the truth. And if every time you do something to tweak that truth that they know, they get angry. And if you do something that really makes it evident that they're suppressing this truth and they have to face something that they're in denial about, then they get really angry and they take it out on you. Now, culturally, we're seeing that in in our current generation. Because for a number of years, you have groups such as atheists and uh, uh, homosexuals and uh, secular humanists, evolutionists, who have been operating in a culture that has been predominantly Christian and influenced by Christianity. But their numbers have been growing. And now they have strength in numbers, and they can let it all hang out, and they write the most horrible letters to to uh, congressmen and to other and to pastors and anyone who wants to stand up in the culture and say that there's right and there's wrong and right and wrong never change and homosexual deviant behavior is deviant behavior it's a sin 
just like any other sin, but it's wrong, and we can't call right wrong and wrong right. We have to take a stand for the truth, and that marriage is for anyone. The laws of marriage that God established are not just for Christians. They are for everyone in the society for the stability of the culture. And and these were creation ordinances established by God, marriage and family. But we live in a world today where people have so denied the existence of God and that we're created in God's image that they're pushing that down and pushing that down into the sub-sub-seller of their soul. And what happens when a Christian comes along and says, that behavior is wrong, all of a sudden this truth that's there holding down starts to knock on the cellar door. And you get a bunch of Christians who start becoming vocal, and the knocking gets louder, and they get really angry because they think they've won the battle and they've been able to push this completely out of sight. They've been suppressing it. Another meaning for suppression has to do with uh, holding to something, holding fast to something. That's not the view, the, the meaning that's in this verse. Uh, third view is to possess something, and the fourth ideas may be present here is that's the fourth meaning is to keep something within limits in a confining manner and that might fit the meaning in this passage that it's not just suppressing the truth but confining it but i like the idea of just holding it pushing it down sort of like trying to stuff a jack-in-the-box back in the box and it won't quite fit it just keeps trying to push its way out on one side or the other and they just don't want that nasty godly truth to come out in their life now in, the, in verse 18, God's wrath is revealed against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because, verse 19, what may be known of God, that is what may be known about God, is manifest in them. Now, this is a dogmatic statement of Scripture. What can be known about God is known to every single human being. I don't care how much they assert their atheism. The Word of God says that on the basis of the, uh, the, the nonverbal witness of God in the heavens, every human being has enough evidence to know with certainty that God exists. The knowledge of God is manifest in them, again because, an explanation, because God has shown it to them. God has shown every atheist that he exists, and what are they doing with it? They're burying it in the sub-sub-basement and trying to put a lock on that basement door. Further explanation, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, so that they are without excuse." Okay, I'm trying to find my little thing here. What is going on here, I thought I got rid of that. What's going on here is a manifestation of sin nature. Now, we talked about the sin nature the other day. Now, you can tell I've embedded an S, like a watermark, in the middle. That's not for Superman. That's for self-absorption, which we talked about on Sunday morning. The basic orientation of your sin nature and mine is self-absorption. And when God comes along and says, you're not supposed to be self-absorbed, you have to pay attention to me, we want to bury him down in the, in, in the basement, 
and lock the cellar door because it's not about him, it's about me. And it's not about you, it's about me. And it's life is all about me, and we, the more we practice truth suppression, the more we give rein to arrogance and self-absorption. And these are the basic arrogant skills that we develop, self-absorption. When we increase our absorption with self, then we become more and more self-indulgent. We just give in to every little thing we want to do, and we spoil ourselves. And the more we spoil ourselves, the more we destroy our norms and standards. And then we have to justify it. So we become experts in self-justification. What happens when somebody comes along with the truth is it exposes the lies and we tell ourselves. And so we don't like that, so we get angry at those people. Self-justification, practiced long enough, leads to complete self-deception. We can't see why wrong is right and why right is wrong anymore. We can't pay attention because we've so distorted and we're so used to thinking a wrong way that when somebody comes and tries to explain the right way, it doesn't make sense to us anymore. And at that point, we've gotten to, to so immersed in our own lies that it's almost irrecoverable. Because we've been exercising negative volition, negative volition, negative volition against God. We've said no, 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 again and again and again towards God. And the end result of all this is it leads to self-deification. We worship ourselves as little gods. And, in fact, this has been enshrined in some of the more extreme forms of the health and wealth gospel movement in the last 20 years where the fact is that God, they'll teach that they want us to be, God wants us to be little gods. No, the problem is we are little gods. He wants us to recognize there's only one God, and that's him. Now, as Paul goes on to explain these dynamics, he says, because although they, that is the truth suppressors, that they, though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. See, when you're self-absorbed, you really can't be very gracious or have much gratitude for things, especially if they go wrong. They, nor were they thankful, but they became futile or empty in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, so the darkness of unbelief shapes their thinking. And professing to be wise, they may have multiple academic degrees, but the reality is that they're fools. And what does that lead to? They've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So this is the background to developing idolatry. And what's the problem in Athens? One idol after another. Therefore God gave them over to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now that's the fundamental point that happens in this decline and deterioration of negative volition. We end up serving and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. What makes Judeo-Christianity, Old and New Testament, unique and distinct among all of the world's religions and philosophies is that their doctrine of origins, 
that the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He is not in any way, shape, or form connected to the creation. He is totally distinct and totally other from the creation. He is not part of creation. Now, the problem that you have in all pagan religions and all pagan philosophies is the God that God or gods that they talk about are part of the creation because there's no ex nihilo creation. Matter or something is always there, always eternal, and everything develops out of that. And whether it's a post-enlightenment scientific view of evolution or it's a pre-enlightenment, pre-scientific view of evolution, that is the only alternative to the biblical doctrine of ex nihilo creation. And this plays a vital part and vital role in understanding why Paul does what he does and why his strategy is what it is, because he understands the, the religious thinking of the Epicureans and the Stoics. And some people say, well, they're philosophers. Well, it's a re- all philosophy is just another form of religion, and we'll get into that. And so to understand the background, I'm going to drill down into something that probably most of you have never heard, and you'll probably never hear it again except I'll reference it now and then because it's important to get into some doctrines and some teaching because it's not taught very much. A lot of people listen to uh, this ministry online. I have I know of a lot of homeschool teachers and homeschool moms who really need information like this. And when I drill down on different topics, when I touch on different topics at times, I don't always go down in in uh, minutia, as some people would put it. Uh, but there are times when you have to, because I mean, it may not be something that's that's uh, scratching one of your itches. But there are people who need to hear this. There are college students who need to hear this. There are high school students who need to hear this. There are college and, I mean, there's homeschool moms that need to hear this. And this happens on a whole range of doctrines. And and I take the time to to go into what some people might think is excessive detail, but it only is if you're not that interested in the particular topic. But these are important, if not for you, for somebody else. But this is important because it helps us understand the thinking of the pagan unbeliever on Mars Hill. And once we understand their thinking and where they're coming from, we can understand Paul's strategy. Why is he saying what he is saying? Why is he emphasizing what he emphasized? And why didn't he do that with the Jews over in Acts Acts 13? Why is the difference? So this is the understanding the great chain of being. Now, a lot of what I'm teaching on this uh, is based on a paper and a presentation I did at a conference on evolution and creation at the Conservative Theological Society in Dallas, Texas, in 2002. And I haven't even gone back to look at this much in the in the intervening 10 years or 11 years since then, and I was pleased as I was trying to update some of my images that there's a lot more information on the Internet about this today than there was then. And I'll show you and say a couple of things about that as we go through this. First of all, we need to ask the question or address the question, what is this thing called the chain of being? Oh, by the way, the paper that I did at that time is going to be posted 
on the Internet and connected to this lesson so those who want to uh, get a little more information and drill down on it can do so. This idea of the chain of being was a common, commonly understood teaching if you had anything to do with academia from the Middle Ages all the way up until the advent of modern science and modern Darwinism in the 19th century, maybe late uh, late 18th century. It was also known as the uh, continuity of being. It was called the Scala Natura or the Scale of Nature by Aristotle and sometimes referred to as the chain of being. First of all, it is a hierarchy, refers to a hierarchy of static unchanging forms with God, and I should have put that as lowercase, God, lowercase, referred to as being, that is, being itself um, in philosophical terms. Uh, the unmoved mover, the good, the absolute, etc., at the top, and then you have angels in descending order because they, and the reason they're all on the same scale is because they all participate in the same being. Some have more of this beingness and others have less of this beingness and that depends on where they are on the scale. So this being of the unmoved mover, as Aristotle put it, or the uncaused cause is at the top, then angels, then humans, animals, plants, down to inanimate objects. Each object has its place on the scale, and the movement is from the top down, and the forms are unchanging. And I want you to notice that, that this is redrawn from the image I used here and is, is on a website devoted to evolution, to the promotion of evolution in case some of you have the idea that, well, evolution sort of started with Darwin or, or someone in the 19th century, uh, multiple websites dealing with the history of evolution that are pure evolutionary websites. Uh, the Christian websites have been doing this for a long time, but now you ha- I've found a lot of evolutionary uh, websites that, t- that trace pre-scientific evolution back to the early Greek philosophers and even further back to pagan religions and the whole idea of the scale of being. The classic work on the scale of being was written by Arthur Lovejoy called simply The Chain of Being. And I'm going to give you some qu- a long quote from him because he says it well and it's clear. He says, The essential and unbreakable links in the chain include the divine creator, the angelic heavenlies, the, the human, the animal, the world, the plants and vegetation, and the planet Earth itself with minerals and water. So rocks and water participate in beingness, but not at the same level as God who's at the top of the chain. God's got the most. Angels have a little bit less. Humans have a little bit less. Men have more than women, by the way, just in case you wanted to know. Um, animals, and then plants, and then inanimate things. But they all participate out of the same chain of being. So he says the image, this image became the basis for calling anything and everything sacred. Now pay attention to that. That, I think, has a role in, if you've been paying attention to any of the stuff that Mark Musser's been doing on the demonic roots of modern... Um, 
the modern environmentalist movement and the occult roots of the modern environmentalist movement, this is part of it. Because everything becomes sacred if every one of us, from God to rocks, participates in the same beingness. Okay, so then everything becomes equally sacred. Lovejoy goes on to say the scale of being was thus an important social concept that was all that was I'll put it in the word also used to justify, justify many different types of social inequality. So it was used to justify a lot of uh, a lot of the reason reasoning and arguments for in favor of slavery. Uh, whites are better than blacks, all the way down the chain, and that the more advanced races are superior to the primitive races, which is why the subtitle of Darwin's Origin of the Species was why the superior races will supplant the more primitive races. The theory of evolution from Darwin is a justification of white supremacy, basically. And if you didn't know that, you need to learn that. That's a basic fact of life. And all evolution and any belief in life based on evolution can't escape that. They may not like it, but that's embedded in their their philosophy of, of evolution. Lovejoy goes on to say, the result was the conception of the plan and structure of the world, which through the Middle Ages and down to the late 18th century, many philosophers, most men of science, and indeed most educated men were to accept without question if you were educated at all, you believed in the chain of being. He says this great chain of being composed of an immense, or by the strict but seldom rigorously applied logic of the principle of continuity, of an infinite number of links ranging in hierarchical order from the meagerest kind of existence, which barely escapes non-existence, through every possible grade up to the ends perfectissimum. That's the perfect being, which is God. We're all, the important thing I'm, I'm pointing out here is everybody held to a chain of being, which was everybody, it, it, it excludes the creator-creature distinction. The Bible says God is totally different, totally other. He doesn't share his being with us at all. Joy, I love Joy goes on to say it's composed of an immense, or, or, uh, let's go on to the next one. So here's a couple of diagrams. In the Middle Ages loved to illustrate these things, so I grabbed some off the Internet to put on here. This was an intricate one from uh, Didicus Validis in Rhetorica, or the Rhetoric of Christianity. Uh, here's another one from the Australian Academy of Science website where they are promoting evolution. This isn't a creationist website. And notice how on the left side of this diagram, they have the uh, uh, Middle Ages illustration of the great chain of being. And you have a series of, of steps here. And on those steps are written Deus for God, angel, and I can't read that one for, for heaven, and then homo for humans, and... I can't read that one for beasts and plants, planta for plants, uh, uh, flama for flame, and then rocks. And So that's your chain of being. And then next to that, from their website, this is a lecture from one of the people on their website. They have their uh, slide here showing how this is basically the same thing that Darwin promoted in his view of evolution. 
So all that what they're saying and what they recognize is everybody's what they're trying to say is everybody's always believed in evolution. Just look, they just didn't have they just had a pre-scientific view of evolution, and we have a scientific view, but we're all saying the same thing. And he's right. Now, among Christians, uh, Rusus Rushduni has done more than others to talk about this. In his uh, book, The One and the Many, talks about this, has some great observations. Apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being, that is of existence, of beingness, has been that being is one and continuous. What he means is throughout history of ideas, this is the dominant idea, is that beingness is one and continuous. God or the gods, man and the universe are all aspects of one continuous being. Degrees of being may exist so that a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men can be described, but all consist of one undivided and continuous being. The creation of any new aspect of a being is thus not a creation out of nothing, but a creation out of being. That is so important to understand. He says, but both God and gods and men developed or evolved out of the original chaos of being. If you look at all these ancient, and we're going to look at them because we have to to get from understanding the overview here to understanding the Stoics and the Epicureans and why Paul says what he says. Uh, in the ancient cosmogonies, Egyptian, Babylonian, and Greek, both gods and men developed or evolved out of the chaos of being. There was always something there, and they came out of that something, whatever it was. That's evolution. Chaos or darkness generates life. It's both the source of life and the enemy of life, blah, blah, blah. This is what Darwin said. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races, that's the white races, the European races, uh, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. That's the colored races. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon instead of as now between the Negro, Australian, or the gorilla. Just wanted to throw that out so everybody would understand what a racist Darwin is and what a racist philosophy Darwinism is. Now, Lovejoy says that when the schoolmen called what the schoolmen called the ends perfectissimum, the perfect being, the summit of the hierarchy of being, the ultimate and only completely satisfying object of contemplation and adoration, there can be little doubt that the idea of the good was the god of Plato, and there can be none that it became the god of Aristotle. So this is my point. This god isn't the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Aristotle, the God of the philosophers, the God of the pagans was part of this continuity uh, of being, and this came from the Greeks and entered into the uh, theologies of the Middle, uh, Middle Ages. So here I have a diagram. God's at the top, and everything emanates from him. This we'll see is so some real parallels to... to um, Gnosticism. So what we have at the top is God, pure white, but you get less and less light as you go further down the line until you get down to astronomical, geophysical uh, 
environment, including the climate. So even the climate shares in being. So you have the climate is now sacred. We ha- this is this is so modern. We didn't come up with these ideas, but we have to understand where they came from. Okay, that's another blow-up. I've got another picture of that. So Alexander Pope, in his essay of man, put it this way, vast chain of being where God began, nature's ethereal human angel man. See the order? Beast, bird, fish, insect, what no eye can see, no glass can reach, from infinite to thee, free thee to nothing, on superior powers, were we to press inferior might on our, or in the full creation leave a void where one step broken, the great scales destroyed from nature's chain, whatever link you strike, tenth or ten thousandth breaks the chain alike. What's his point? Everything shares and is linked together in this great chain. That's where Greek pagan thought's coming from. That's where modern Western European thought is coming from. That's where postmodern thought is coming from. That's where all pagan thought comes from. Next time, we're going to start with Egyptian cosmology. We'll just look at that. Probably won't spend a lot of time. We'll do Egyptian briefly, Babylonian briefly, and that's going to just set us up for understanding the, the Greek thought and the Stoics and the Epicureans, and then we can understand why Paul does what he does. And the thing is, you're talking to the same kind of people on the streets of Houston. They may not have the terminology down. They may never heard of Aristotle or Plato, but they think that way. And Paul understood that. That's why he put the gospel the way he did. And the way he did it is really simple. We don't have to, you don't have to have a degree in philosophy. This helps us understand what's going on. But the issue is Paul is not going to sacrifice the doctrine of the the creator-creature distinction when he witnessed to people. There's no compromise in finding some sort of common ground between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint because human viewpoint or, or worldly thinking has nothing in common with the thinking of the of God. And too many people are trying to, to compromise biblical truth in order to make it more palatable to pagans. And the pagans don't want it to be palatable. They want it to be so suppressed and buried in the basement that they'll never hear from it again. But our job is to give them the gospel and to shine as lights in exposing the darkness. So we'll come back and look at this next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, cultural thinking and shifts, recognizing the principle that we need to, in a sense, know the enemy. We need to know the audience, know whom we're teaching and what what their strategies of defense are, for we are about the business of pulling down every uh, fortress and high thing raised against you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that were seen emulated by the Apostle Paul as he explains the great gospel of our so great salvation, our free salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.